The Irish Passport is grateful to our wonderful sponsors, BiddyMurphy.com. Biddy Murphy is the online shop for genuine Irish goods that are made on the island of Ireland, founded to bring the best of Ireland to the world by Tipperary man Ward Gahan. You can find jewellery in traditional Irish designs, fantastic woven products, and those iconic Irish flat caps, as well as all manner of artwork and gifts over at BiddyMurphy.com. So check it out. Before we get to the show, let's hear a quick teaser for 180 Degrees, a great podcast by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland that has also sponsored this episode. Do check it out. In terms of transport, I think change is going to happen. It's going to happen very rapidly. It's not going to happen today or tomorrow. I think around 2024, 2025 is going to be absolutely crucial. When price parity comes in, it won't make sense to buy a petrol or diesel car. I think supply is finally going to kick off by then in terms of choices. We're going to have loads of choices of family cars, small cars, whatever. Um, I think we're going to see autonomous cars by 2028 start to really make a difference. And I think the landscape, the motoring landscape is going to be unrecognisable. Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. Okay. I started to have an interest uh, not only the Irish culture but also Irish dance and Irish music and uh, And we're all very lucky because we arrived in time for the Rugby World Cup. It was my purpose to study Irish music. I also love Irish punk rock. Do you know Pogs? I love Pogs and it's very... Yes, I really love it, so... Konnichiwa, Naomi. Konnichiwa, Tim. (laughs) And I suppose konnichiwa to all of you listeners, and especially those of you who have a connection with Japan, since today we're going to be talking all about the surprising relationship between the island of Ireland and that other island all the way over on the other side of the world. And believe it or not, everyone, we went on location for this one. So I travelled all the way to Japan a little while ago to find out how or even if Ireland features in people's minds there, particularly in advance of the Rugby World Cup, which was set to cause a record estimated 30,000 Irish people to descend upon the country. Yeah, good luck. In in (laughs) this episode, we're going to hear why the study of Irish literature and culture is really, really popular in some parts of Japanese society. Irish people is very uh, well known for uh, migration, so I felt some kind of similarity between us. I'll be reporting from the buzzing Irish trad scene in Tokyo and finding out why the genre has gained so much momentum in the Japanese music scene. Bit by bit, I started to have an interest 
not only the Irish culture, but also Irish dance and Irish music. And we'll hear about the last Irish missionary nun in Japan, who spent three quarters of a century in the country, only to return to Ireland at the age of 100. I was very fond of the Japanese people. They were so polite and so nice and so Japan is also an important economic partner for Ireland in its strategy of forging trade links around the world. Diplomats have been working hard to encourage those links as it becomes ever more important with the prospect of trade disruption closer to home. So, Tim, I believe that you have dutifully compiled a few key facts about Japan so we can familiarise <laughs> our, ourselves with the basics. Yes, indeed I have, Naomi. Uh, dutiful as ever. Uh, so here goes. Um, did you know that the country of Japan is actually made up of 6,852 islands? A lot of islands. I did not know there, there was that many. <laughs> That's loads of islands. Um, <laughs> in total, its national territory is about four and a half times the size of the island of Ireland, uh, including 108 active volcanoes. Wow. Uh, it has a massive population too. There's some 126 million people there. And that's about double the population of the UK. The Japanese word for Japan is Nippon, though I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. And that means sun origin. So interesting. Now, of course, ironically enough, one thing that a lot of Westerners know about Japan is that historically, we have known very little about it. Yeah, right. Uh, European traders didn't really make it there until the 16th century. And uh, shortly afterwards, the ruling emperor initiated uh, the isolationist Sakoku policy, which severely limited links with the outside world and prevented people from entering or leaving the country for over two centuries. And uh, that policy only ended in the mid-19th century. And after that, Japan became a global industrial power. Uh, it is currently the third biggest economy on the planet. Uh, today, it's officially presided over by an emperor who is a bit like our own president in the fact that he's considered to be holding a ceremonial role. And it has the longest standing unamended constitution in the world. So there you go. Uh, but Naomi, that's all just factoid uh, waffle. Um, having actually visited Japan, what were your own standout impressions of the country? It was an amazing place to visit. To me, it seemed like the most developed country I'd ever been in. Um, it was like a step above every other place I'd seen. So it's incredibly clean everywhere. They have amazing trains um, called the Shinkansen, which are just like so fast. They just zip you from one end of the country to another in like no time. The The food was incredible and cheap. And it's really common to really like eat out quite casually for lunch and dinner rather than cooking at home. So we did that an awful lot. But amazingly... <laughs> Because Japanese cooking is so healthy, I actually lost quite a bit of weight, um, which was great for a holiday. Um, and I was amazed by how beautiful and preserved the nature is. Like they really do treat their forests with reverence. Um, it was really amazing to see all the ancient temples, which were really untouched by time. And something that was different from a lot of other places that I've visited as a traveler was that it was really lovely to visit somewhere that was both extremely different and, you know, new for me as an experience, but also very, very safe. Like there was no edge of worry or concern that you might get when you're traveling to a new place often. Japan is just really very safe. Um, it's like an extremely civilized country. And um, so being restrained and polite is really important. 
And even just being too loud in your voice or gesticulating too wildly can uh, alarm people. Like I gave several Japanese people a fright just by moving abruptly towards some discount sushi, for example, in the supermarket. <laughs> um, so you have to become quite conscious of the learned ways that you have of behaving and, and do your best to fit in smoothly. Right. Okay. So learning to restrain yourself around discount sushi. Like, <laughs> easier said than done. Um, uh, but in terms of the relationship between Ireland and Japan, then I suppose we're dealing with something very different um, than the international links that we usually talk about on the podcast like uh, those between Ireland and Australia or Ireland and Canada or even India. Um, there was never any large-scale migration from Ireland to Japan, right? Nor vice versa. No. Um, so historically, there's been very little migration from anywhere to Japan. Immigration laws have there have been traditionally very strict. Um, but there are links between the countries. At any given time nowadays, there are maybe 2,000 or so Irish people in Japan. So, you know, the numbers going for the World Cup are many, many multiple times the number of Irish people there usually. Um, and there is migration the other way too. So according to the 2016 census in Ireland, there were just under 1,000 Japanese people living in Ireland. And I met one man of Japanese heritage, a keen GAA player who had spent 10 years of his childhood in County Kerry before moving back to Japan. And I asked him how he would compare his experience of both countries. So my name is Satoshi Otsuka and I'm 27 years old now. And I'm originally from the north part of Japan, which is called Tohoku. Okay, I've lived in Ireland for 10 years. So I've lived in County Kerry. Town, this small town called Killarney. Yeah. You were, my family are from Killarney. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, really. Like, how would you explain to our Irish friends like what's uh, similar about Ireland and Japan? Oh, I just think the the people is really kind, and they're all they're all there to help you. So I think that's the biggest similarities. If I'm if you're I'm looking, if I'm looking for help, you know, my friend in Ireland they always help me, and in Japan it's the same thing. You know, because I started working in Japan and the biggest difference is, you know, just we had to work on the weekends too. So we're all busy working. Uh, wow. Like I'm, I'm a school teacher and I have to go look after my club activity in Japan. And that never happened with my teachers in Ireland because like, you know, they had like three months of holiday for summer and everything. So I thought it was a dream job. But when you come to Japan, you don't get holidays. So you, you were misled from your experience of going to school in Ireland. Yeah, misled, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I was told that for lots of people in Japan, Ireland is really not very well known. And some people confuse it with Iceland uh, quite a lot because the names are really similar. You know, it's just one letter different, which I suppose is to be expected, really. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, uh, really considering our awareness of nations comparable in the si to the size of Ireland in the Pacific Ocean, uh, you know, which is basically nil, uh, it would be pretty impressive, um, I'd find, if, if people in Japan knew anything at all about Ireland. Well, here's the catch. In some quarters of Japanese society, there's actually a massive knowledge of Ireland. So it's a kind of special subject of interest which attracts a group of very involved connoisseurs. So there's entire social clubs and networks built around Irish culture, music and dance in Japan. And even Komaltus Kyoltori Erin, the Irish Music and Dance Society, has a very strong presence. So Tim, as you know, I paid a visit to a few Irish pubs while I was in Tokyo and I was amazed to find enormous sessions of traditional Irish music in full flow, full of local musicians. So in one, I counted fully 25 players all taking part at once 
every one of them Japanese, and displaying a great dedication to authenticity and musical skill that was just breathtaking. Well, no, let's not waste any time then. Uh, let's hear right now from a few of those players that you spoke to at the Tokyo sessions in the Old Rock Pub in Chiyoda, downtown Tokyo. from Osaka. Here in the Old Rock, there there's a big trad session going on. H- how often do you do this? Uh, uh, this? This is the first time for me. I'm just a guest musician here. And do you ever play in Osaka? Uh, yes, I usually play in Kyoto and Osaka area. So. My name is Kiyoya Soda and I'm, I'm playing uh, Irish flute. And where are you from? I'm from uh, Tokyo, just uh, near from here, bit by bit. I started to have an interest, uh, not only the Irish culture, but also Irish dance and Irish music and, uh, and, uh, and uh, all of the Irish, uh, Irish things, Irish, such as Irish history or uh, Ireland itself. And then I um, traveled to Ireland uh, several times, and after that uh, I started to Irish dance 10 years ago. How did you start playing Irish music? Because my friend, so he's he's kind of the music geek, and he just introduced me the Irish music. It's a bossy band. He did all the recording of Irish music, so just I really into it. Yeah. And you say you ended up in Dublin. Yes. What did you do? Uh, so I had a visa, the working holiday visa. Uh, just I I did a part-time job and I just play tunes in pub. I I learned many things from. Yeah. So you were you were playing as a trad musician in Dublin for a year. And um, what's your instrument? Uh, fiddle. And uh, I'm from Tokyo, and uh, I studied Irish music and dance in uh, University of Limerick. Sometimes conversation like this, or like I just play with you know my friends, it's maybe in the house, you know, 
Why do you think Jap Japanese people like Irish music? My my come natural to like Japanese people's ear because you know people say like uh, the the scale is uh, like similar to Japanese like uh, folk music and like all all well all the folk music is kind of connected you know but like in some ways because like Japanese folk music from like past was inspired by like you know folk music from like Europe or America and then like it's all it's all connected you know so. So it's kind of it's familiar, familiar enough sound, I think. When I went to Ireland in 2010, like I was the youngest, you know, who plays. Well, like nearly the youngest who who, who was playing Irish music in Tokyo. But now, like there's like hundreds of people, and uh, also like lots of interest in uh, dance, you know, Irish dance. And I think it's for the community, you know, like I think Japanese people are looking for like. Well, like not every every Japanese people, but like some Japanese people are looking for like building up like some sort of like community like who share the same interest. Yeah. So that's so interesting. So it's becoming more popular among young people. I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can certainly see that. There's like 30 young people here all the time. Yeah. And I play today. I play the tin whistle, and uh, usually I play uh, Indian pipes. And have you ever been to Ireland? I uh, four times um, for sightseeing, and I uh, I take part in a virtual and Kiranyi gathering festival. The gathering. Yeah, <laughs> the gathering. Thank you so much. Thank you. She's the Ogoshi, and I play Irish music and I play banjo. Yeah. Yes. I heard you doing some like rap earlier. Oh my goodness. Uh, it doesn't. Okay. Please. Is it possible to make an excuse? I mean, I was forced to do like that. So it doesn't mean that it's familiar. Well, it sounded cool. Oh, thanks. thanks. So why did you, um, why were you in Dublin? Uh, actually, I studied in UCD, a university college Dublin, as an exchange student for half a year. And it's, I studied Irish music there. And yes, it's, it was my purpose to study Irish music. I also love Irish punk rock. Do you know Pogues? I love Pogues and it's very... Yes, I really love it. So, actually, before I was into Irish music, I loved punk rock music such as Pistols and Clash. And that, but now I'm into Pogues, and that's the reason why I'm interested in Irish music. I'm Kozo Toyota. I'm uh, 38 years old. Uh, I'm a professional musician. When I practiced Tim Whistle at the first time, uh, my father or my mother joined with the guitar. And uh, my younger brother 
joined uh, with uh, chopsticks and uh, balls. So it's a first family session in my, my home. And uh, it's uh, amazing because uh, in classical music, if we uh, try to family ensemble, it will make a lot of confliction. <laughs> Probably because uh, classical music uh, has a uh, too strong uh, regulation. But uh, to play Irish music, for example, if uh, someone play uh, with a wrong melody, an- another another people cannot say it's a mistake. It may be regard regarded as a variation. <laughs> Do people know what Ireland is? Is Ireland well known as a country here in Japan? <laughs> we. Because <laughs> we're only a very small country. There's lots of people who don't know. Uh, yeah. I hope <laughs> a lot of people know uh, about Ireland, but uh, some people sometimes uh, confusing with England. Yeah, uh, so, some people regard Ireland uh, uh, as uh, a part of England. Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> Oh, that sounds like so much fun, Naomi. And I'm actually um, really touched um, by those speakers, how much they, they really just have a love for our traditional music and dance. It kind of makes me want to like join a Japanese music society and you know find out what I'm missing, maybe return the favor. Yeah, I mean, most of them do it because it's fun. You know, they often get involved in these traditional Irish music and dance societies at college and it's a way that they have of you know making friends and having fun and you know maybe meeting a, you know a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever so uh, yeah they, they really do it for the love of it and I was really blown away by the sheer knowledge that some of the players had about the musical tradition in Ireland and like I'm being 100% honest when I say that they would put most Irish people to shame in how informed they were like they were just able to reel off obscure names of artists and songs that I would have the barest acquaintance of. I mean, I, I was asked oh, what were my favorite, what were my favorite trad spots in Dublin, and I was kind of racking my brain and going, "Ah, uh, you know, um, Piper's, uh, what's it called, Piper's?" And the guy goes, "Piper's Corner." Yeah, I played there a few times. And like it was just like they wiped <laughs> the floor with me, honestly. Yeah. We heard a few suggestions in that those clips uh, already about this, uh, but why do you think, of all places, that Irish trad music has become such a big thing in Japan? So there's a few theories in circulation. So first of all, it does help that Irish traditional music is disproportionately popular around the world, considering our country's small size. So that means there's a lot of opportunities to, for people to stumble upon it. Yeah, right. And something that like was really striking in uh, hearing from from those sessions is that like the music was so authentic. Uh, like it was exactly the same sound as you'd hear from like the best local musicians that you'd find in Ireland. Absolutely. So something that I noticed was that in Japan, uh, there seems to be a culture of what I describe as, as like connoisseurism. So people are interested in developing a really deep knowledge and mastery of subjects and skills. And they take a great interest in doing it well and, you know, really trying hard at it and trying to do it as authentically as as they can. So it's a very musical society. And for example, there's a really huge jazz scene as well. Um, And I have no doubt that there are many excellent Japanese players of all kinds of music in the world. 
But when it comes to Irish music, I was told that the specific appeal of it for Japanese people is that it's reminiscent of traditional tunes that people might know from their childhood. Like it has harmonies that um, somewhat recall Japanese folk music. So it, it sounds kind of appealing and nostalgic. And that uh, approach of connoisseurism and authenticity is really appreciated by trad musicians back in Ireland um, who are well aware of, you know, the Japanese players and, and what they contribute to the scene. So one of the interviewees, Kozo Toyota, he's a veteran of the Flakyol, which is the annual festival of Irish music and staple of the trad calendar that's put on by Komoltos Kjoltorieren. And Kozo has performed at something like seven Flakyol, Let's hear the sound of him here. He's performing in Ennis with his band, the Toyota Cayley Band, and receiving a great reception. Some wonderful Irish traditional music from the Toyota Cayley Band from Japan at Flakeholm here in 2016. I thought it was really interesting, actually, in Kozo's interview, how he mentioned that the family element of trad sessions was really appealing uh, to him. Um, some of our listeners might know that in Ireland, traditional music is you know, typically played, well, traditionally anyway, in family homes, you know, sometimes just in a kitchen or maybe in a local pub where most people would know each other. So there is this long tradition of whole families essentially constituting a band uh, where each member adds to the music with a different instrument, you might think of. Uh, even like um, modern groups like the Corps or the Black family, for example. Yeah, and it's that social aspect of the trad music scene that was mentioned to me perhaps most of all by Japanese people as something they found to be distinct about Irish music that was appealing uh, for them. So Japanese people who play instruments uh, find Irish music to be quite an easy and fun way to be able to play music and play together in groups and just have a good time. So they really like the easygoingness and the that culture of just doing it for the love of it and the fun of it. And I was told that that's quite different and a welcome relief compared to the culture of classical music in Japan, which can be very formalized, quite rigid and competitive, and also a bit isolating. So it would be very focused on the skill of uh, the individual player, very high pressure. Of course, if you make a, a mistake in a trad session, it's really not a big deal. It's kind of drowned out in the cacophony. And it might even add to, you know, the loose and exhilarating atmosphere of the music. There's a very generous attitude to people who are learning or improving their skill. And I was told that this aspect is particularly appealing to women who play instruments in Japan. So they can find themselves treated quite harshly by strict older male teachers in traditional music learning in Japan. And they find trad sessions to be this free and welcoming place to just, you know, use their skills and play music without fear of being bullied. It's worth noting that in that trad session I was recording from and um, that you heard the, heard the sounds of, a firm majority of the players there were women, um, a lot of them playing fiddle. And they weren't really represented in the interviews very much because they were much more reluctant to speak to me than the men. And some of them um, kind of said they weren't that confident in their level of English and that's why they didn't want to speak and others just said no. 
just as an aside, it's something that I have observed in many countries that I've worked in uh, all over the world. You often have to work harder to get women to speak to you. They're often more nervous of exposure and they're not used to being asked for their opinion or articulating it. Yeah, absolutely. I found the exact same thing when uh, interviewing for Vox Pops. Now, uh, another aficionado of uh, trad music you spoke to was Professor Kazuo Oikawa of uh, Waseda University in Tokyo, I believe. Yeah, it was fantastic. So I went to um, visit Professor Oikawa, uh, who generously, hospitably welcomed me to his home. And amazingly, before we even started to speak, um, I just mentioned that I'd been to this impressive trad session. So he pulled out a bazooki and he started playing tunes on it. And he showed me the instrument and it was this, uh, you know, instrument bought from a master craftsman in Ireland that he'd purchased. As well as his love for Irish music, Professor Oikawa is an expert in Irish literature and he's published widely on it, including works on Patrick Kavanagh, W.B. Yeats and James Joyce, to name a few. He spoke to me about his incredible dedication to Irish culture, including his favourite traditional group, Planksty. Let's hear some of that interview now. I'm Kazu Oikawa, uh, born in uh, Hokkaido in 1958 so i am 61 years old and right now i'm professor of waseda university uh, school of education uh, the department of english language and literature well, so now i'm currently uh, working on mainly poetry and uh, last year i published a book uh, irish poetry and national identity the harp and green <laughs> uh, this is a uh, 19th century edition of Thomas Moore's Irish Melodies, and this is uh, its collection of po- uh, poems published in 1914, Responsibilities. This one is uh, Winding Stairs. <laughs> Third part is uh, contemporary, uh, Patrick Kavanagh, mainly focusing on his great poem, Great Hunger. Chapter 10 uh, is Brian Fury's translations, very masterpiece in the t- 20th century Irish drama, you know. Uh. That's fantastic to hear. And my God, that man's knowledge on Irish literature. I mean, uh, listening to the longer clips that, that didn't get into here, like the, he was just reaming off 19th and 18th century poets. So <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed. Something I was really intrigued about um, was what Professor Oikawa suggested about Hokkaido having a particular affinity with Ireland. The reason why I'm, I'm interested in Ireland uh, was uh, poetry. Uh, I was born in Hokkaido. Hokkaido is the northernmost uh, Ireland in Japan and very cold. Very new land, Hokkaido. Hokkaido was, uh, Hokkaido was uh, introduced in the Japanese territory roughly uh, at the end of Tokugawa era. And so very new country. And my grandfather was born and raised in Sendai. And then uh, migrated to Hokkaido and uh, established my house. So uh, maybe Hokkaido people in general have a feeling they are not authentic Japanese. <laughs> oh, but, so maybe 
Irish people is very uh, well known for migration, so uh, I felt some kind of similarity between us. <laughs> uh, moreover, uh, the size and population of Hokkaido is very similar to Ireland. Uh, the surface of Hokkaido Island is 83,000 square meters, and guess what size Ireland is? What size? 84,000, so it's almost exactly the same. Um, They also have this really similar population, 5.5 million people in Hokkaido and and 6.5 million people in Ireland. But there is more to this. When the professor mentioned that Hokkaido was new in the Japanese territory and suggested that people there might sometimes feel a bit like outsiders and that for that reason it had something in common with Ireland, I was really intrigued by that statement. So I kind of looked into what he might have meant by that. And actually, the parallels in the history of Hokkaido and of Ireland are really quite striking. Okay, so tell us what you found. Okay, well, before I go any further, uh, I should say that I'm no expert in Japanese history, and I know for a fact that we have listeners in Japan, so guys, I'm counting on you to write in and set me straight if I've misinterpreted any of this. Um, But anyway, here goes, right. So it turns out, first of all, that Professor Oikawa isn't the only one who has made this comparison between Ireland and Hokkaido. Um, Another researcher named Philip A. Seaton published a book in 2015 called Local History and War Memories in Hokkaido. And in that book, he points out a number of comparable historical features. In fact, Seaton actually takes a passage from another book referencing colonial Ireland after 1801, and he substitutes the word Japan for Britain and Hokkaido for Ireland. And basically, the passage works just as well in both contexts, which is amazing. <laughs> That's so Okay, so what are the parallels? Okay, right. So Seaton notes that, like Ireland, Hokkaido is an island that is divided from another much larger and much more powerful island by a very narrow ocean strait. And uh, similarly, um, he notes that the smaller island was the subject of a colonial project at the hands of the larger island from more or less the 16th to the 20th centuries, which is more or less the same period as Ireland was undergoing the exact same thing. So, Naomi, uh, did you know that Japan has an indigenous population known as the Ainu or Izo? I've heard of the Ainu um, mostly in anime, actually. So they're Mm. often depicted as these cool, like, native people, hunters who kind of live in sync with the land. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. Um, I've come across them also in a different context in um, in my own research. Uh, European naturalists in the 19th century were pretty fascinated with them because they appeared to look completely different to the population on on the rest of Japan. And they had a totally different uh, language and culture that was really, really distinct. Anyway, until the middle ages. Uh, The uh, Ainu were the main population of Hokkaido, and right about the same time as the English were sending the first waves of colonial expeditions to Ireland, Japan was sending settlers to Hokkaido. And what you ended up with in Hokkaido was a minority Japanese elite, the Matsume, who were expanding Japanese feudal rule into Hokkaido by controlling the trade links with the Ainu who, who lived there. Fascinating. Yeah, right. So you can see why Professor Okawa would see those similarities. Now, um, Phil Philip Seaton, who I mentioned earlier, notes that some historians have also seen Hokkaido as a kind of internal or domestic colony in a very similar way to how Ireland was seen uh, for Britain. And other researchers, he notes, have claimed that the history of Hokkaido was steadily erased in the Japanese imperial narrative to make it seem like the island was always a home part of the metropole, which, you know, does sound a bit familiar. It does sound kind of familiar, yeah. Yeah, okay, well, the comparisons do get a, a, a bit a bit uh, weirder. Uh, the, the Ainu 
who were rebelling again and again against the system, just like the Irish, but they were doing it at the exact same time. Uh, in fact, the, the Ainu's biggest rebellion, known as Shakuchain's Revolt, was in 1669, which was just 20 years before the Battle of the Boyne. Wow, so what happened? Well, oh, well, all those rebellions failed, just like in Ireland, and just like in Ireland, one after another, uh, the, these defeats had this very destructive effect on the native culture. And by 1858, mainland Japan had totally taken over Hokkaido because, wait for it, it was a strategic military geopolitical weakness for outside invasion, <laughs> uh, mainly from Russia. Wow. And of course, listeners will remember from previous episodes that one of the original motivations for the English colonization of Ireland was because it was this vulnerable flank or potential mm. invasion point for uh, enemies in Spain and France. Yeah, so it's striking, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, later on, the island gets renamed, just like uh, Ireland did. It gets carved up into new uh, territories, just like Ireland did. And the Hokkaido, like Ireland, continued to be a vulnerable flank. Um, just at the exact same time as Ireland was being pointed out as a weak point for Nazi invasion in World War II, Hokkaido was being pointed out as a weak point for Russian invasion in World War II. And <laughs> it was targeted a lot by Russia uh, during those years. So what about the Ainu now? Oh, they're still around. Uh, population estimates depend on how you classify being Ainu. Lower estimates, about 25,000. And then there's much higher estimates, about 10 times that amount, depending on criteria. So I don't know what kind of conclusions we can take from that. But I did find it really interesting. I had to kind of mention it. Um, it's interesting that the two similar geopolitical territories on opposite sides of the world would have such a comparable history that was unfolding at the same time. Completely fascinating, yeah. Now, as we said, Professor Oikawa is an expert in his field on Irish poetry and literature. And one of the things he mentioned to me was a famous Japanese translation of James Joyce's Ulysses. As anyone who's dipped into James Joyce will know, he's an author who even... Native English speakers sometimes find impossible to read, let alone translate. So I was really intrigued to hear how does one go about transforming Joseon prose into Japanese? Professor Takamatsu uh, collaborated in translation of Ulysses with uh, uh, novelist, and uh, he is from Otara in Hokkaido. And so. So, how do you translate Ulysses into Japanese? <laughs> it, it may be uh, impossible. <laughs> really? Like, how, for example, there's like long passage which yes, sounds yes, like yes, yes. thunder. Uh, how does uh, that translate? Uh, I have a translation. Do you want to uh, see it? <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay. Mm, here you are. Okay. <laughs> I can, yeah, those are the, the notes. Yeah. And I can because see uh, many passages in Ulysses have uh, two or three meanings at, at the same time, so it is uh, impossible to uh, express these passages in, in a single phrase. So <laughs> I also asked him about one of the most famous Irish-Japanese literary figures in the 19th century, Lafcadio Hearn. So Lafcadio was born to a Greek mother and an Irish father, and he has a really dramatic life story. He went to the United States, first of all, where he became a popular journalist and was fired from his job for marrying a black woman at a time when that was illegal. Then he ended up moving to Japan in the 1890s, where he married a Japanese woman called Koizumi Setsu, who was the daughter of a local samurai family. So Lafcadio Hearn took her name, becoming Koizumi Yakumo, which is how he's known in Japan. He began teaching English and writing about Japan and became a university lecturer. 
This was at a time when Japan was still largely mysterious and unknown to outsiders, and Hearn's writing became one of the principal sources of European knowledge about the country in the early 20th century. He also collected and wrote down Japanese folk tales in collections that are still widely read by children in Japan today. He was he was half Irish and half a Greek, you know, and uh, his father was a Anglo uh, Anglo Irish uh, man and uh, who served as a military sergeant, and uh, he began to be interested in Japanese uh, culture because Han's sensibility was deeply pagan. Uh, he hated Western modern culture and civilization in general. Uh, because Western civilization and uh, culture in the 19th century was very oppressive. About uh, concerning uh, sensibility, he was like a hippie <laughs> in the 19th century. He's quite famous here in Japan. Is he remembered most of all for the fairy tales that he wrote down? Yes, yes. Uh, he rewrote uh, fairy tales, kind of masterpiece. Maybe some some people regard, regard them uh, as dated, but uh, it's a record of a very peculiar man from a foreign background, seeing the uh, situation and culture and history of Japan at that time. Uh, it is a very valuable thing, isn't it? So, Naomi, uh, we said earlier that there's never really been any large-scale migration from Ireland to Japan. Uh, sometimes, though, smaller-scale migrations have had a big enough impact. Uh, one really interesting piece of our shared history is the tradition of Irish Catholic missions in the country. Right. So, for anyone who's not aware, until recently enough, there was a really entrenched tradition of Irish clergy joining missions abroad, the aim being both to proselytize local populations to the Catholic faith, to work in Catholic schools, and sometimes to carry out humanitarian work. Right. And this kind of activity has been going on in one form or another, you know, for centuries. Uh, you might think about Irish monks going and setting up monasteries across medieval Europe, you know, and stuff like that. And obviously, it's an action that's garnered plenty of criticism over the years, especially considering that Catholicism being a religion of many colonial superpowers has played its own role in colonial projects across the world. In the Ireland of 100 years ago, though, um, most Irish Catholics would have had a very uncomplicated view of that kind of mission. And that was when Jenny O'Sullivan, or Sister Paschal, was deployed to Japan as part of her order. Amazingly, Naomi, she continued to live there for 75 years and only returned to Ireland recently at the age of 100. Let's hear now from France 24 journalist James Creedon. He recently produced a film documentary called Thanks to Your Noble Shadow, which made an appearance in the latest uh, Galway film FLA, by the way. And he interviews in that film his cousin about her 75 years in Japan. Let's hear a little bit about what he discovered. Uh, I'm James Creedon. I'm a TV journalist for France 24. But in 2013, I started recording the memories of uh, Sister Pascal O'Sullivan, uh, known as Jenny to her family. Uh, she was a cousin of my great grandfather's. Basically, uh, when she in 2010, when she uh, came back to Ireland uh, full time at the age of 98, my curiosity was piqued. And um, after her 100th birthday, I began to record her memories. Most Catholic families in those days were large. There was at least one or two members who would be encouraged to join religious orders. It was seen as prestigious. Missionary or Catholic schools often tried to recruit the, 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 the most talented students 
you also had um, schools that were establishing themselves in Ireland that were not Irish in origin. You had the Infant Jesus Sisters who were a French order, for example. That's who Jenny uh, joined up with. She even recounts in the film how you had uh, nuns going around knocking on doors, going door, door to door, recruiting. Um, so there was a uh, there was a recruitment effort. Jenny was one of the few that went to Japan. There were they that particular order had five or six schools in Japan, and uh, because uh, Japan was uh, very much admired as a culture by uh, this French order, they sent. I think it's fair to say some of their best recruits. You joined up if your father uh, paid the dowry, which you, he would have had to pay of was £500 in her case, which was a lot of money, uh, then uh, she would have been trained up to be a teaching sister, otherwise she would have been a lay sister. And as a teaching sister, uh, she was sent to Yokohama initially and then Tokyo. I remember to the first time I saw my father cry. He said, she's yours now. And he handed me over to her. They have now, in truth, become the spouses of Christ. Their young lives are thus consecrated to God and to the service of a people in faraway pagan lands whom they have as yet never met. The Empress of Japan was taught by Jenny. Her predecessor, the Empress Michiko, was taught by other Irish nuns at the Sacred Heart School, another missionary school, French-founded. And she had a friendship with Seamus Heaney. She, through her education by the at least one or two Irish nuns at the Sacred Heart School, had knowledge of uh, Irish poetry, Irish folklore, history. She could recite uh, Joseph Mary Plunkett's I See His Blood Upon the Rose uh, by heart. Um, so there was a, a connection at the very top of Japanese society with uh, Irish educators from friends of Jenny who were all some of them past pupils, others not, who I interviewed during the film. I realised that uh, a lot of uh, Japanese people had a, a great uh, love for Irish music, Irish folklore, Irish culture. Some of the best Irish music I ever heard was played in uh, an Irish pub in Tokyo where uh, these uh, young ladies came in with a harp and various other instruments and I was just blown away by their, their mastery of these Irish instruments. So there's definitely a great curiosity about Irish culture in Japan. I suppose you have Ireland, the westernmost island in Europe, Japan, the easternmost islands in Asia. And there's a curiosity, I think, about, you know, almost these two points of tension across land masses in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And Ireland, I suppose, has always been very outward looking, a country of great, uh, you know, uh, great emigration. Japan has been somewhat more inward looking. So they have opposite qualities to them, but also many similarities, I think. She experienced a lot of culture shock in the first year. Um, she said that she cried every time she heard the word mother. You can imagine as well that um, when she, she didn't speak any Japanese, she was never actually given formal Japanese lessons. She had to learn through, I guess, uh, just picking it up. And she was thrown into a classroom the day after she arrived, um, after the six-week boat journey, not knowing anyone in Japan. Um, I think there were some other Irish sisters uh, at that time who had been there. So that was some factor in terms of, I suppose, softening the, the, the blow of the culture shock. But she experienced an extremely different culture with very few bridges, nobody really who spoke English. And she had to just get on with it and, and teach 
um, through, you know, uh, sign language, um, just basically first encounters between cultures that didn't know each other. I mean, this is going back to the most basic methods of teaching when you have no tools. And that was basically what she had to do in, in 1935 when she arrived. She was, you know, in these enclosed orders at the time, wearing these big old habits uh, with a, quite a strict, I think it was a, there was a rule of silence in these in these convents when you were outside of mealtimes and whatnot. It was very austere. There was nothing left before. Nothing. Oh my goodness, I can never stay here. Missionaries were uh, well regarded um, because of the teaching skills they brought. Missionaries had been allowed into Japan from uh, the late 19th century onwards, and, and certainly they were, they were well regarded in the environment that she was in. Uh, the blowback against Catholic missionaries, I think, wouldn't um, apply to Japan because it's quite a small percentage of uh, Japanese are Christian or, or were baptised or had any contact with that, uh, with that whole world. Uh, as I said, they came in uh, missionaries quite late in quite a restricted way, in quite a controlled way by the Japanese authorities, uh, where a lot of the time they were teaching really, um, you know, in, in somewhat well-to-do um, contexts. And so she had a lot of contact with people who were not actually Catholic. A lot of the students in the school were not Catholic. And so she would have had contact with people who would have had a Buddhist background or even just, you know, uh, a Shinto or not particularly spiritual background. There was a lot of respect for Japanese culture, broadly speaking, and uh, they had a lot of respect for her. So I think there was none of that blowback. Uh, she didn't experience any of that blowback. Having said that, uh, she was interned as a British enemy national uh, for um, two years and ten months, I think it was, um, released six months before the end of the war, this during World War Two. So she was in four different camps in uh, Yokohama and Tokyo, um, and it was only six months before the end of the war that, as an Irish woman, she was recognised not to be a British enemy national, Ireland, of course, having been neutral, at least nominally, during the Second World War. Um, so perhaps at that time there was a suspicion of them as, you know, nuns uh, who could represent uh, a threat to Japan, uh, potentially uh, not being loyal or whatnot. A suspicion of them, at least, as being outsiders. Uh, but I think that was m as much to do with their perceived British nationality or um, as it was anything to do with being a missionary nun. <laughs> I was very fond of the Japanese people. They were so polite and so nice and so gentle in every way. They were lovely. She was in Japan from 1935 onwards. Uh, Ireland only established formal diplomatic relations with Japan some 60 years ago. So she was in the country for decades prior to that, before the war, during the war and for, you know, after the war. And she was also uh, in contact with a lot of people who went on to become decision makers or spouses of decision makers. She she really, I think, shaped a certain perception of Ireland in the eyes of many people in Japan who were high powered. Uh, she was given an award by the education minister uh, sometime before her departure 
she had actually taught this education minister at a time when when boys were also allowed in the school at a younger age. Um, another lady um, of the same family actually uh, wept in the film as she recounted how much love uh, Sister Pascal had for her past pupils, what a loving person she was, what a kind person she was. This woman ha- who was not alone had her brother been the education minister, her, her, her father had been a prime minister at some point in Japanese history, but she had lost her mother very young. And so Jenny was a sort of a mother figure for these children. I think she was a living bridge between the two countries for a long, long time, albeit in a quite restricted way in the sense that she, she was operating uh, in, in, in behind closed doors in the school environment and in the broader circle of the school. But actually that had quite a lot of reach in what is uh, a society that is somewhat pyramidical, I guess. She was the naughtiest, naughtiest little girl <laughs> I ever met in all my life. But they turned out the best, you know. By the way, listeners, if you want to find out more about that documentary and see some pictures and video footage, you can head over to the film's Facebook page. Turning to the future, Ireland has been working very hard to increase its trade links to Japan as part of its strategy to find new markets for Irish goods. This is particularly important in the context of the political turbulence that we're all so familiar with and the prospect of disruption to trade links more locally. According to Ambassador Paul Kavanagh, trade links in future will only strengthen thanks to an economic partnership that was signed between the EU and Japan earlier this year. What's very clear is that the relationship by, between Ireland and Japan, as I said, is, is a long-standing one. It's a very rich one. Uh, and what's very clear is that it has huge potential for growing further. And Ireland is, in fact, very ambitious in that respect. The two-way trade between Ireland and Japan were just about 11 billion euro. The surplus that we have with Japan is the biggest in the Asia-Pacific region. Japan is also by far the largest source of foreign direct investment from the Asia-Pacific region into Ireland. Our economic relations are going to strengthen going forward by virtue of our membership of the European Union, because the Union, as you know, has recently concluded the Economic Partnership Agreement. It is the largest trade agreement in the world uh, right now, which is why other people want to catch up. Something I found really interesting to hear from Ambassador Kavanagh was that with the UK having become a less attractive place for Japanese companies, and with the Japanese government even going so far as to express its concern, Ireland is really pitching itself hard as the place where Japanese companies should come as their gateway to Europe. He's really selling Ireland very hard on its EU membership and its support for that membership. There's something like 88 uh, Japanese companies uh, in Ireland. One of the things that's favourable towards Ireland's efforts to attract additional Japanese investment is the fact that Ireland will continue to be a member of the European Union. Ireland is strongly committed to being a member of the Union. In the last year, some public opinion polls in Ireland have indicated 92% in favour of continuing in the Union and 99% among third-level and full-time students in Ireland. Now, the Japanese notice this. They notice that there is a stability to Ireland's participation and a continuity, and so they can look into the future and anticipate safely uh, that Ireland will remain part of the single market and therefore Ireland will be going forward 
even more than before, Ireland will be the ideal platform within the European Union and the single market of several hundred million people for investment. Well, with promises of bountiful trade relationships to come, Naomi, <laughs> I think uh, that's, that's all we have time for in this episode. Don't forget to check us out on Patreon, where you can sign up as a supporter today and gain access to our whole library of extra content half-pint episodes. Thanks as always to our sponsor, BiddyMurphy.com, where you can find authentic gifts and products made on the island of Ireland. And how better to play us out than with some more of that fantastic Japanese trad music. This track is called Fogs by Ojizo from their album Via Portland. Slán, everyone. Slán. Mm-hmm.